Well, I, I, do, I actually think that's what it is, is the return of sanity. I have a dream. This nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Where possible, it is standard practice to seek less intrusive means and to narrowly scope any search that is undertaken. With all due respect, that's a bunch of malarkey. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Democracy simply doesn't work. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It's the Ricochet Podcast with Peter Robinson and Rob Long. Rob's not here. I'm James Lilix. I am. And we talk to Andy McCarthy about, well, you know what, the raid. Can we call it that? In any case, let's have ourselves a podcast. I can hear you! Welcome, everybody. It's the Ricochet Podcast number 605. I'm James Lilix in an unusually autumnal Minnesota, Minneapolis, today. And joining us again after a, a Lord knows where he's been around the world is Peter Robinson. Now, Rob, we know, is off somewhere in the world. He's in Tunisia or he's in Malaysia or Myanmar or somewhere. We'll find out next week. But Peter, where have you been? Well, we spent uh, uh, about three weeks in various places in the western and middle United States. On oh, the middle. We... The, uh, uh, we spent, our base was Jackson, Wyoming. Our base was Jackson, Wyoming. But, and here's what happened in Jackson, Wyoming. Three days in a row, as I sat, I was trying to combine work with vacation. And so I sat in my bedroom at a desk and typed and typed and typed on this, that, and the other. And three days in a row, a bull moose walked up out of the woods and looked at the window I don't, I, I assume what he saw was his own reflection, but maybe he looked in and saw me and he lay down on the other side of the window. This is 10 feet from me, mm -hmm. who was by now pressing his nose against the window to observe all this and made himself comfortable and spent the afternoon lying outside my window, chewing his cud. And I don't know. I can't even really quite articulate how strange and wonderful it is to be that close to this weird beast that even no child would ever design. It's like a rhinoceros. You just, mm -hmm. you who, who would ever design such a creature? And yet there it was. And at that range, it was beautiful. Its fur was different colors of brown and black and these strange velvet covered Antlers, horns, what are they in a moose? And uh, and I thought to myself, I'm not that far from coastal California and its dense population. We, I flew to Wyoming and met my wife and daughter who had driven. It's a 14-hour drive. It's not nothing. But on the other hand, it's a day's, it's a long day's journey. And there we we were in a place where big creatures such as moose just wandered around wild enjoying themselves i don't know is it is it is this another place to say what a country only in america what a something country. like that something like that well, when last we spoke before you left you yes yes we're yes. also regaling us with a tale oh, I, 
of a moose. Of a moose. The same, there's the same moose. There's He's just sitting in moose. my head. It's still, it looms even larger in retrospect. Than it so did I'm waiting for the, next, next week you to speak of his little flying squirrel who would alight on him and encourage him to go off <laughs> on adventures somewhere. Well, well I, we also went to Idaho. I have to throw this in just to get to a different animal. And in Idaho, we saw antelope. So I have now seen the whole, oh, give me a home where the buffalo roam, buffalo right. ticked. So the buffalo and tick. the deer saw deer as well, big mule deer, deer tick, and antelope tick play. Now, moose don't appear in that song, but if they did, I'd be able to tick that box as well. Well, I hope that nobody said a discouraging word, because that's not the place to do it. Or at least you can do it, but of course people plug their ears so that seldom is heard a discouraging word. And the skies are not cloudy all day, which is another strange way of putting it. How's the weather today? Well, the sky is uh, <laughs> not cloudy. So, welcome back. And I'm glad that you got to touch grass and get in touch with the earth. Um, hurrah. Now, however, here we are in this mess that we find ourselves in. We're going to be talking about the political ramifications of Mar-a-Lago and what was behind all that with Andy McCarthy later. Of course, Andy knows his stuff. Uh, he wrote a piece about how it's you know, sort of gone from, it was a fishing expedition, but as somebody else pointed out, it's gone from a fishing expedition to a fishing expedition. So we're going to get to that. But I wanted to posit a few things, Peter, first. Yes. Let me just throw something out there, and uh, you tell me what you think. Now, I think... My view of the FBI, some people have their view baked in. It's fossilized. They know what they think about it. I think that the FBI's behavior in the Russiagate uh, embroglio uh, was intentional malice. Um, it was institutional keister covering in the end. And in between, you had a lot of credulousness and wrote bureaucratic people doing what they did because the thing was in motion. I think it was bad. Uh, I don't think that Russia it was, this is this R is pre Mar-a-Lago. Right. Right. Pre right. Right. That it's that it that it started with them knowing exactly the dodginess of what they were doing, and then it took on its sort of own bureaucratic inertia, and they ended up covering their keister for the sake of the institutions. I just said so. All of that combined gave me a bad taste of the FBI, but I never really believed, as maybe some people do, and I don't want to overstate the number, that the entire institution is corrupt. There are good people who work there. There are de dedicated people who work there. And maybe that's just because I grew up watching Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. do his G-Man thing every week, but I still have some faith in some people in, in the organization. I'm not, I haven't given it up completely, even though we seem to know what they are capable of. But if there is nothing big that comes out of this, and by big, I mean, well, you know, they've been saying all week, the walls are closing in, which we've been hearing for six years, like an endless loop of the Star Wars trash compactor scene. But unless Trump is manacled and marched off into the back of a Black Mariah, uh, it seems to me that this will push people like myself a little bit more towards the, I just don't trust the organization, period. And I'm automatically suspect now. And the people who hate Donald Trump and uh, believe he's a criminal and don't really care what means are used to get him, if nothing comes of this, their belief in the FBI will be un unmoved, un un unchanged, that they'll just you know shrug and move along. A little bit more radicalization on one side and indifference on the and, and indifference on the other. How about that? Does that seem unwise? Um, I'd rather talk about the moose because the things you're talking about are really dire. <clears throat> and what you're talking about is a justified erosion in faith in our intelligence, domestic, let's put it, FBI isn't just law enforcement, it's domestic intelligence. 
I have to say, when I was preparing for the interview that I did, what was this, a month ago now, six weeks ago with Bill Barr, former Attorney General William Barr, I just reviewed, I looked up, well, here's what I came up with on the FBI. I did an interview years ago with Judge Silberman, Larry Silberman, Lawrence Silberman, who is now retired, but was for many years on the D.C. Appellate Court, a very important jurist. It's, lawyers such as John Yu tell me that this is, in all kinds of ways, the second most important court in the land after the Supreme Court. And Judge Silberman had a long and distinguished career before becoming a judge on that court that included time at the Department of Justice. And early, at some point, as I recall, in the 1970s, he was given the job of reviewing J. Edgar Hoover's private files. J. Edgar Hoover kept filing cabinets in his, and it turned out nobody had moved them. They were still in filing cabinets in his secretary's office. Hoover had died. Somebody needed to look at what these things were, at what was in these things. And Judge Silberman wrote a piece at the time, in the Wall Street Journal, I found it, and he said it was the lowest moment in his career in government service, that file after file after file was disgusting, that it was the results of surveillance on people whom the FBI had no right to be surveilling, that it was Hoover collecting evidence that he could use to place pressure on politicians. Larry Silberman said, it was so, he, he, he felt that justice couldn't be done, the FBI couldn't be righted, until the FBI headquarters was renamed after somebody other than J. Edgar Hoover, something that has never happened. So there you have, right at the inception of the FBI, and under the figure who made it what it is, and the figure who engaged in all kinds of propaganda and had the FBI cooperate with Hollywood in producing those Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. television programs. You have corruption that goes on for several decades. Then we have this period when it supposedly got cleaned up, <coughs> except that we now know, because he admitted it before he died, that Deep Throat the source for Woodward and Bernstein for Mr. all Felt. kinds was Mark Felt, who was number two at the FBI and whom we now know thought he should be number one. And he leaked material to Woodward and Bernstein out of sheer spite. And then we get the Russia. Ho I have no faith in the institution. I'm sure there have been many, many good people who have prevented all kinds of crime mm -hmm. and done justice in all kinds of ways. But the incentives for people to engage in bad behavior when they have enormous power and get to behave in secret, get to conduct themselves in secret, those incentives are just wrong. You Perhaps just... it's not the incentives, it's the lack of disincentives. I mean, whoever pays the price. In, in between Mark Felt and in between in Russiagate, of course, there's Ruby Ridge and the, the Waco and the rest of it. There's yes, a lot of things. Yes, a lot of things. All of this. But maybe we should we should take a little solace in the fact that we haven't now seen a point of we haven't crossed a Rubicon of of of, of behavior because 
they've been doing bad all along. That, I mean, it's cold comfort, I suppose. But the idea that this uh, previously upright institution is now has now been corrupted like never before, well, we'll see. But what you mentioned is interesting because Hoover and the FBI and the way they spied and surveilled and MLK and the rest of it was for years, for decades, held up by the progressives, by the left, by the liberals as, the, as, as one of those things that's wrong with America. The FBI was the enemy. Now, in that inversion of nearly everything that we're seeing uh, you have the right that is castigating the FBI as an out-of-control, corrupt institution, and the left that is defending it as the bulwark, shall we say, um, that keeps our freedoms from being eroded by the second coming of Trump. Uh, okay, all right. So what are we to do then? I mean, when we talk about, well, we have to you know, dismantle the FBI, like with every other institution that people talk about, if we if we can't get rid of something like the Department of Education, which, as far as I can tell, uh, directly educates exactly zero students. Correct. The idea of doing something like getting rid of and reconstituting the FBI, rebuilding it, um, you you have to have a societal catastrophe that scours to the ground nearly every single institution and requires them all to be rebuilt along new lines, which I don't well, see happening anytime soon. We're on but, our way. We're doing a pretty good job over the last few days. Well, they want to tear down. I mean, the Hoover building that you spoke of is one of the ugliest and most hated in Washington, D.C., perhaps. And there's always been talk about replacing it, destroying it. Maybe if they just said, well, we are announcing the destruction of the Hoover FBI headquarters. Oh, and by the way, as long as we're at it, we're just going to get rid of the constituent institution that sits inside and come up with something different. You know, we had four years of a guy who wanted to drain the swamp seems to be at, uh, you know, chin level where it was before. So I'm not exactly sure that a second term of Trump would do anything about it or a first term of DeSantis, but we would be hearing endless calls for reform. If this, if these uh, slippers happen to be on the other gouty feet, don't you think? Don't you oh, think? I mean, oh, without a doubt, with, absolutely without a doubt, absolutely without a doubt. That's the other. I was about to say tragedy here, but I don't want to be too pompous about it. Just here's here's the political. The latest polls showed that over half of Republicans were ready to move on from Donald Trump. Over half mm -hmm. of Republicans were backing someone other than Donald Trump. I saw a poll in which I believe his numbers dipped below 40%. If you ask registered Republicans, actually, I can't remember. I, I don't want to state the poll in any detail, but it was asking Republicans, whom do you back for president? Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, this, that, and the other, Nikki Haley, so forth. And it, it, it got to, Trump fell to something like 40%. Well, for me, I stipulate yet again, that I believe Donald Trump was far more sinned against than sinning. But I am ready to move on. Personally, I'm ready to move on. And it is my judgment that what the country needs is a Ron DeSantis, a, a no, or, or, some, or, a, or Tom Cotton, or Nikki Haley, a no-holds-barred Republican primary in which the next generation of leadership asserts itself, gets elected, and puts this country back on some kind of even keel. And now, Merrick Garland, I cannot, we'll have to ask Andy McCarthy about this, I, in my mind, cannot conceive, uh, I can't even imagine anything that justifies what just took place, but the political effect of what took place is this. The Justice Department may just have Donald Trump of the Republican nomination all over again. Perhaps. 
We were told a little while ago that the Dobbs ruling from the Supreme Court would uh, upend our predictions of the midterms, which I don't think it's going to do. And in this case, um, by the time we get around to vote, oh, yeah, people, yes, people are going to be angry about this and people are going to want Trump to fight back. But the point is, um, I think people believe, well, I, I can't speak for everyone. I can speak for my side of the of the equation, that people are concerned enough about the dire straits in which the company, country seems to find itself in economically, energy-wise, foreign policy, etc., cetera, uh, require a, a fresh mind, a young blood, smart idea, somebody who's smart, somebody who's persuasive, and that the idea of just reinstalling Donald Trump in, a, in an act of peak Yes, that's exactly what it would be. That's exactly show, you know, what it would be. Will you say we can't have this guy? We'll show you. Okay, I get that. Right. But right. once that's done, then what? Then what? Right. If you're telling right. me that a lame duck president is going to be able to somehow upend the swamp, drain it completely, and uh, in fact, I don't think so. But again, this all depends on what they what they have. I mean. The, the fact that it went from, well, the FBI is serving as the process or is the process servers for the National Archives, and we're going to send in the FBI to get the post-it notes and the menus and the uh, ripped up pieces of paper from the toilet for the National seemed thin spaghetti at the beginning of it, right? And then all of a sudden that story morphs into the nuclear codes. Now, everybody, nuclear, classified. Well, if there's one thing we learned from the Hillary Clinton episode, it's that the term classified applies to nearly everything that flies That's around true. Washington. So that, that doesn't necessarily mean something. But what I saw on Twitter in the more excitable corners was the belief that Donald Trump, traitor that he is, they, don't, they know he's a crook, they know he's a, you know, a shady businessman, they know he's an absolute traitor, was going to use the nuclear secrets that he took and sell them to Putin. Or to Iran? Are you kidding? Arabia. You no, actually no. saw that people were saying that oh, on Twitter. Absolutely, absolutely. So they, they absolutely so believe that he was going to traffic nuclear secrets. Now, I cannot, for the life of me, figure out what kind of nuclear secrets he would have that would that would require this sort of action. I I just don't. I mean, I can easily imagine that. Well, I can imagine that he had some documents, perhaps, that he wanted to keep, uh, perhaps, as, uh, you know, a little, a little safety net. You know, in case something comes out, I got this on you. But on the other hand, Donald Trump strikes me as the kind of guy that if he had that sort of information, would have been waving it around and talking about it a long time before. Right? I mean, the idea that the 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 17-dimensional chess player thing here, well, I've got this little secret envelope. If this person says this, I'll be able to do that. No, I mean, he, he would have been alluding to something or talking about right. it if he had evidence of this or evidence of that, says me, based on, you know, examination of the guy for the last 30 years or so. So I don't know what they, they, they have to come up with something, and it has to be big. It's got to be big, right? And if it's as big as it needs to be to justify raiding the home. And I know it wasn't technically a raid, but I don't care. People go into your home when you're mm -hmm. not there and without your permission, and you 30 FBI agents ransack your house, including your wife's wardrobe. That's right. a raid. I don't, yeah. well, I don't know whether what technical definition is required, but that's a raid. It's a, that's an invasion of I would personal that, privacy. I, personally, it, somebody, go, go on. No, I was just going to say, if they have something, so big that it required that response, then why did they wear an half? This man's been out of office a long time. If they had to take that drastic action to ensure national security, what, were they, what have they been doing for the last year? Year and a half or year and four months or however long it's been since he left office. Yeah. There's, I just can't see any way it adds up.
I, if they knocked at my door and said they were going to make a complete uh, search of my house, I would, you know, let them in and, and say, well, let me see the warrant. Okay, I got that. Uh, you can go upstairs. You know, so it's kind of a mess up there. You know, I haven't made the bed. I would feel bad, bad if I hadn't made the bed. <laughs> but on the other hand, perhaps I didn't make the bed for a very good reason, because I wanted to look at the sheets. You know, so you make your bed, you cover your sheets. Oh my you goodness. You don't make your bed. Your sheets are there for all to see. And maybe that unrub that rumpled unmade bed the is actually a sign of pride. Work. The master at work. Because they might come in and look at those sheets and say, that's a satin. Is that a satin finish right there? I'm sorry. I, the, my warrant says I'm able to look under the mattress, but I got to ask, what's your, <laughs> what's your thread count on that? And I would tell them, I would tell the FBI, ha, thread count. It's a myth. It's a myth. Doesn't matter how many threads your sheets have if they're not the best threads possible, right? Everybody say it with me together because you know where we're going with this. Bowl and Branch. Bowl and Branch uses the best 100% cotton threads on the earth for a superior softness and a better night's sleep. Their sheets just aren't buttery, breathable, and impossibly soft to start. They get softer with every wash. So if you're laundering something every week, you'd think, uh, eventually it's going to get translucent. I'm going to see through these sheets in a couple of years. I've been using these things for years, and as I say every week, my sheets are softer than they were the week before. The signature hemmed sheets from Bowl and Branch are a bestseller for a very good reason, and you will immediately feel the difference. From there, the sheets just get softer and softer with every wash because they're made with threads so luxurious. They're beloved by 37... Pre- no, I'm kidding. No, well, they're beloved by three U.S. presidents, as we all know, but can you name me some other sheets that even have one? No, they can't. If presidents can't convince you, well, check out more than 10,000 stellar reviews. Plus, Bull and Branch gives you a third-risk free trial with free shipping and free returns on all the orders. And as I always say, why do they offer free returns? That's got to cost money. It's because you won't send them back. You're going to love them. Get 15% off your first set of sheets when you use the promo code Ricochet at BowlandBranch.com. That's BowlandBranch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, Branch.com. Promo code Ricochet. And we thank Bowland Branch for sponsoring the Ricochet podcast. Someday I'm going to have to buy another pair, another pair of sheets from, from them. And I, uh, you know, I'll probably be about 87 years old. And they'll be great sheets then, too. One. And now we welcome back to the podcast, Andrew C. McCarthy, senior fellow at the National Review Institute and a contributing editor to that fine magazine, served as assistant United States attorney for the Southern District of New York. Uh, he wrote a widely shared piece after the big news broke out of our lago. Uh, we wanted to have him on so we could elaborate why the search happened and what it means. Hey, Andy, welcome. Good to see you again. Gents, how are you? Great to be with you. Couldn't be um, better. Can you, could you take us through, could I ask some layman's questions? It, 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 Okay, so he, the two, just take us through, I mean, all kinds of questions about what on earth could, the politics of it, and so, but just sort of baby step questions. Two questions, just as a general matter, what are the circumstances that would entitle an arm of the United States government to enter the private home of a citizen over when without that citizen's permission? How does that happen? What is what kind of legal groundwork is necessary before a, a law enforcement agency does that? And then the second very basic point, Andy, I've been watching you on Fox, and I've heard you draw the distinction between the warrant and what you have referred to as the underlying affidavit. And I honestly need a kind of just a a, a, lame, a definition of 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 both and why the underlying affidavit is of such importance. So just baby stuff before we ask your judgment about whether the republic is coming off the the project is coming off the wheels in this great republic of ours just give us a little bit of an explainer peter i think the first question is really important in this particular case 
um, for reasons I'll get to. Let me answer the question first and then, and then bounce back to that. What you need to seize property from someone under the Fourth Amendment, uh, and there are statutes that have, and rules that have been uh, that have been engrafted on top of the Fourth Amendment, but the Fourth Amendment is our minimal protection. You need probable cause that a crime has been committed and that it is probable that evidence of the crime will be found in the place to be searched. So those are the two things that are required. To and her the reason clear. I Yes, and there are two distinct hurdles, right? Yes, you show both. I mean, generally speaking, they they you know they often conflate, as you can imagine. But but sure. you do have to show those two things. The reason I think it's really important in this case is because we've heard a lot of information thrown around about the Presidential Records Act, for yes. example. Okay, the Presidential Records Act is not a criminal statute. There are no criminal, there are no penal provisions in the Presidential Records Act. It's basically guidance uh, that Congress enacted at a time when, uh, you know, up until Watergate, the assumption was that presidential materials belong to the president, right. not to the government, which is why we have all these fabulous uh, presidential libraries all over the country, right? Um, it was only after Watergate that Congress acted in a way that now the assumption was changed, and we're talking about uh, government material. And there's still disputes between uh, former presidents and the National Archives about who who gets to keep what. But for our present purposes, and and directing myself to your question, it's not a criminal statute. So. Even if you even if we assume for argument's sake that a president wildly violated the Presidential Records Act, um, that's not a crime because there's no criminal provision. Um, so you would can have I to just ask give what what would a wild violation of the Presidential Records Act involve if he kept a diary and he took it to Mar-a-Lago to his re into his retirement with him instead of turning it over to the archive what, what just give us a, so he give took us an the actual he, he took the endeavor desk home <laughs> okay <laughs> well i i would say for example um let's say he said uh, bring me all the state department records of uh, you know uh, x trip to to go uh, visit this country and the meetings we had etc and you had all these state department reports that were written about that those are clearly government reports they're government records but they're also executive branch records that are generated by the presidency of whoever the incumbent is right. at that time right. i would regard that as different peter than um say a personal diary where you know, a president made notes for himself with an eye toward whether it was toward history or to writing memoirs or or just having something to refresh his recollection if he ever uh, needed it. So I think some things are pretty obviously government records. Other things are probably fairly obviously the personal property of the president. And then there's probably an awful lot of mush in between. Yeah. But your point is, even if there was an undisputed violation of the Presidential Re Records Act, that could not have served as probable cause in the Department of Justice's request to the magistrate in Florida. Is that correct? That is correct. Now, oh, I so, don't so think all of that speculation is just totally misguided. Goes right well, out the window. Well, it's not. It's not irrelevant, though. And let me try right. to explain why. The so what 
there is criminal law about is classified information, you know, mishandling classified information and worse, a crime. There are a number of statutes uh, in Title 18, which is the U.S. criminal code, uh, which pertain to the mishandling and worse of classified information. Now, here's the principle of law. And let me just explain, uh, try to explain why I think it'll be interesting to see how it relates to this particular case. Um, there's a doctrine of law that says as long as the agents have a lawful um, license to be in the place where they are conducting a search and it's legit, legally legitimate to conduct the search. So uh, to be more concrete about it, they have a search warrant that's been ordered by a court because there's probable cause of a crime. Right. So they're in the door based on that. The agents are not required to turn a blind eye. If they see obvious evidence of illegality that is not covered by the warrant. So once they're in the door and the way I the way I often frame this is, let's say I have um, evidence of a of a notorious robbery in my jurisdiction and I'm pretty sure X committed the robbery, but I'm dead certain that he's a small time drug dealer. Um, I write I write a search warrant for the drugs. I don't say a word about the robbery. And the reason I don't say a word about the robbery is is both legal and practical. Legally, if the agents go in on my drug search warrant and they find the robbery tools like the gun and the screwdriver and the mask and, and what have you, they can take it. The law allows them to take it. So I don't have to cover it in the warrant in order to make it lawful for them to take it. As a practical matter, as a prosecutor, if I put the robbery tools in my warrant and the agents go in and they don't find it, then the defense lawyer at trial is going to say, and you told the judge you were going to find these robbery tools, right? And did you find any of that stuff? Um, so it, it, why do I want to guess if I don't, you know, if I, right, if I don't, right. if I don't go there, they can still take the stuff. But if I, if I guess and I guess wrong, uh, it could redound to my detriment at the trial. So that's just a, a practical consideration. So how does this relate to the presidential records act? Well, the presidential records act is not a crime, but it is illegality if you violate it. So I think one very interesting thing that may come out of all this is, Yes, if the agents find evidence of illegality um, when they're in the warrant, in the conducting a search for a different reason on the basis of war a warrant that describes different crimes, are they allowed to take that? Because we're not talking about we're not talking about crime. We're not talking about another crime that is unrelated oh, to the war. We're talking about civil illegality. So. You know, the doctrine is basically if they see something that's obviously against the law, they don't have to to have blind eyes to it. But we're not talking with the, the Presidential Records Act about something that's crime. We're talking about something that's illegal in a different way. So, you know, I, th I think that's going to be an interesting we're going to have a lot of uh, very interesting issues here. And let me let me quickly go to your second question, because I yes, want to also important. Um, when we talk, there's a lot of talk out there about the warrant. There is no the warrant. The warrant has two pieces. One is the it's it's basically a single sheet and it's a federal form. All search warrants in the federal government look alike. It's just a, a, a federal form. It's what the magistrate judge signs. Uh, and it the most important part of it 
is it lays out with some specificity what the agents are allowed to take. It's required that that be laid out specifically because absent that, the warrant is a general warrant, which is the very thing that the, the framers were so worried about, the idea that you just basically give Fishing people carte blanche. To, to, right. So we don't allow that. You have to ha- you have to specify what they're allowed to take. So that's usually a single page uh, document, although if you're going to be exacting and lengthy about what you're allowed to take, what frequently prosecutors do is they staple an appendix to the warrant like a few pages, which, you know, in the part of the one page warrant where it says th- describing the items to be seized, it'll say see Appendix A. And then you will flip to okay. Appendix A and, and that'll lay out what they're allowed to take. But isn't, so isn't, that a, isn't that a list of screwdrivers and masks and guns, though? I mean, it, it, yes. if, there's, if they're telling what that they can take, I mean, if you're hypothetical that you stated before, if a guy goes in and they get the drugs and they get the scale, but the only burglary tool they see is a, is a screwdriver, well, that, that has a variety of purposes. Right. Likewise, if they go to Trump's house and they see a whole bunch of documents, those could be just documents that he gets to have. I don't think anybody looked at this and said, hey, look at this. It's the uh, cyclotron. It's our latest uh, nuclear device schematic. I know exactly what this is. Yeah, they, had to they, know might... something, they had to know something about what they were looking for, right? Yeah, yes, but they might look at it, and this is the, the relevance, I think, of the federal re- the Presidential Records Act. Um, they might look at it, and it might have like the Department of State letterhead on it. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's in other words, it's obviously a government record, right? But it's not classified. Mm-hmm. Um, can they take that because he's in violation of the Presidential Records Act, even if it's not a classified document, which is what they're supposed to be uh, in there to take? And I, I, we may get to this, I guess. But, but you know, my view of it is a lot of this is pretextual because what they're really trying to do is make a case on him about January 6th. So I think they want the expanse of the Federal Records Act because that means they can grab more stuff mm-hmm. and grabbing more stuff will eventually help them potentially prove more crimes than so, just uh, classified so information. Even though they f- follow the letter of the law in requesting and receiving this warrant, what they really want is a fishing license. I think so, although I don't want to suggest because I've gotten in a little trouble. That's what you, you guys you were talking about. Trouble? Rate. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? And I need you to help me, except there you are saying raid. And I just I heard that you're not allowed to say raid anymore. And here's another word for you, Peter, that that I'm in trouble for using pretextual. So what I, what I suggest to people is that um, the real agenda here is to try to make a case on Trump on January 6th. And I think yes. if you look at the timeline, that's clear and I can explain that. But I use the word pretextual and I got myself in trouble because the the uh, connotation of that word is that I might be talking about fraud or suggesting that somebody uh, you know told a lie to a court. And that is not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is they have a closet agenda that is more important to them than their ostensible agenda. By the way, I think be- that- before we lose it, the distinction between the warrant and the affidavit because yes. now you're getting into the deep waters that we want to pursue, but we've still got to get these couple of basic points, I think. All right. Yes. So quickly, um, the warrant just is the judge signs it and it says what the agents are allowed to take. And importantly, because there's been a lot of confusion about this this week, um, the 
the federal law requires the agents to leave a copy of the warrant in the premises after they've uh, executed it. So President Trump has had this warrant or his representatives have since Monday when they did the uh, when they did the search. And, you know, when he says that, uh, you know, he demands now that they release it, he could have released it himself anytime since Monday. He's had the warrant. You have to leave a warrant and you have to leave an inventory, which is a listing of the items that you've seized. And there's a variety of reasons for that, not least. It's an anticipation of litigation later on. If somebody says, like, you know, um, you, the, the government sees this for me and the government says, no, we didn't. You know, somebody may come in and say they took 20 million dollars from me. And the government says, what are you talking about? Here's the, you know, here's right. the inventory. Oh, one well, it was one a thing, Andy, check for uh, 499 uh, about that inventory, though. Do they have to specifically list every piece of paper or is it sufficient to say we no. took a banker's box full of documents? It's sufficient to do that because, James, otherwise the rest of our lives yeah. would be spent uh, yeah. spent doing that. So um, it has to be specific enough to be a decent inventory, but it doesn't have to be that uh, exact. So now the war- the warrant affidavit. Yes. Um, as we said, you have to get you have to have probable cause, both that there's a crime and that it, the evidence of it is going to be in the place you want to seize a uh, search. That is what is laid out in the probable cause affidavit, which is sworn to by an FBI agent. It's usually an FBI agent in federal investigations. Um, it's generally written in federal practice by the prosecutor. I mean, you consult with the agent because the agent has to be satisfied that it's true since he's going to swear to it. Um, but the prosecutor generally writes it because the prosecutor is the one who knows what it takes to make probable cause of a statutory criminal violation. So um, that war- that affidavit usually goes on for many pages, depending on, you know, how complicated the case is. Um, it could be, you know, 10, 15 pages, or it could be, you know, a couple of hundred pages I've seen in, you know, some cases. Really? Well, sure. Like we did uh, when I, I had a big mafia case that we investigated for a couple of years before we took it down. And that went on, you know, it was for years and years, and it went on for pages and pages. So the important thing about the about the probable cause warrant is, or the probable cause affidavit, is that is filed under seal with the court. It is not part of the the warrant. You do not have to leave that. You never leave that on the premises to be searched. And if I could, just to to hammer this point home. We criticize, uh, I certainly criticized the FBI a great deal for abusing FISA. Yes. And uh, during the Russiagate stuff. Definitely. Uh, and, my, and one of my main critiques was that in FISA, the re- there's too much temptation to violate the law because nobody checks your work. You know, the agent never the agent and the government, the government lawyer meet with the FISA judge and there's no defense lawyers. And there's never going to be a defense lawyer because they don't anticipate there's going to be a prosecution. So the only due process an American gets is if they follow the rules in that meeting. That is not true in the criminal justice system. We hope we get honorable people in the criminal justice system. But what keeps people honest is they know their work is going to be checked. So even though. That that affidavit is not left in the place to be searched. If a if an indictment is filed 
and a prosecution follows, which generally does happen in a case where uh, things are serious enough that you've gone to the point of, of executing a search warrant, that stuff gets turned over in discovery to the defense. So if the government has lied to the judge or if there are errors in the warrant or if it's a very shoddy investigation, it's not like FISA. You're going to be found out here. Uh, and there's, you know, hell to pay. Okay. So three quick questions before I turn it over to, before I turn you over to James. You think you're a tough guy, Andy. You put, you put away bad guys. You just wait because James Lelix is about to come at you. But item, item number one, on the affidavit, the signing agent has exposed himself to penalty of law. That Correct. is to say, he th that's the point of an affidavit if it turns out to be untrue he has perjured himself and can go and is that not correct sworn statement to a court yes this is a very serious matter item number two of three can we suppose that this affidavit was reviewed personally if not written by but at least reviewed personally by the attorney general of the united states i would doubt that oh um, you would that that he read the affidavit i would doubt that um so how That's, much does Merrick Garland know? He said he personally, in his little news conference the other day, he said he personally approved this. What does he know? At what level of detail does he know what's going on? Peter, let's say the let's say the uh, affidavit was eighty pages long, uh, and I'm the boss who has to review it. I've read it, and then Merrick Garland, who I work for, says to me, "So what do we got?" And I sit there and for five or 10 minutes, I summarize for him what the evidence is. I don't think he needs to, if he gets that, I don't think he needs to read the warrant because if he read every single important thing and look, there's right, nothing right. more important than a case like this, but he can't, there's not, you know, life is too short. That's why you have subordinates. Uh, so I, I, you know, I give him slack on that. Okay. Uh, and then my third and final question before I turn it over to James, I'm confused. This, uh, this is not me asking on behalf of listeners. This is me asking on behalf of me. How do they get to choose which judge to give the warrant to? And and can you clear up, who is this guy? Magistrate. And I, keep hearing, I keep hearing he's a judge magistrate, not just a judge. Who the heck signed this thing? Right, and why did they go to him? All right, let me... First, let me explain what a magistrate judge is, because there's been yes, confusion please. about this, too. A magistrate judge is not an Article Three judge, like a district court judge who is appointed by the president on advice and consent of the Senate. Magistrate judges work for the court. Um, they're kind of quasi judges. And what they do mostly is help the judges hash through their civil dockets, which, you know, require refereeing a lot of discovery disputes and uh, and, th and that sort of stuff. So it's, it's kind of like a junior judge um, who's appointed by the court, not the president. These are employees of the court uh, and they're they're They have fixed terms. I can't remember if I think it's seven years, something like seven years. Uh, but the court appoints them. And, you know, so there was some reporting this week that because this guy became a magistrate in, I think, 2018, that Trump appointed him. Trump did not appoint him. The court appointed him. OK, uh, now it looks to me his name is Reinhardt. Um, and it looks to me like he's a progressive Democrat, although he's apparently made a contribution to Jeb Bush uh, as well. But he made so he's a progressive to Democrat. Yeah, right. <laughs> I thought you I was going to get away with sorry, that. Sorry, sorry, sorry. So, um, but uh, he's he's not only um, made contributions to, I think, Obama, 
Um, he recused himself from a case that involved a dispute. I can't remember if this is a defamation case, but it's a dispute between Clinton and Trump. And he got out of it because he said he couldn't be fair. And he's got a posting on Facebook where he's taking shots at Trump. So he's obviously one of these people who, you know, is an anti-Trump person. And I think it was a mistake for him to keep this case. I think that uh, it would have been much better for the Justice Department if a different judge uh, had taken this. So so do they have discretion? Why did they end up with him? They chose so, him? In, in different districts, Peter, they do it different ways. In the Southern District of New York, where I was, um, one judge is on what they call miscellaneous duty for about two weeks. You know, they go through the whole roster of judges and each one of them is on duty for two weeks. The judge can refer things to the magistrate, but there's a magistrate who's on duty at the same time the judge is. Um, you don't always know, depending on the district, which judge is going to be on duty. But once the two week period or whatever it is starts, you know, right, because it, that's just uh, they have to clear their calendar for a certain period of time. So they would have either known that this guy was coming up on, you know, that his turn was coming up to be in that miscellaneous duty or it would have been obvious. You know, I think they got this warrant on a Friday. So I'm sure by the end of the week, they would have known which judge was on duty that week and which magistrate was catching I'm sorry. cases. We cannot eliminate the possibility that somebody at the Justice Department was waiting for a friendly to sign the warrant. Yes. We cannot yep. eliminate that. No, in fact, look, okay. this wasn't even thought to be back in the old days. This wasn't even thought to be gaming the system. Like if I had a if I had a cooperating defendant, I would wait until the softy judges were going to be uh, on duty because one of the things the miscellaneous judge does is take pleas. You know, among things they do is they they you know they sign search warrants and title of uh, uh, wiretaps and all this other stuff. But sometimes they take pleas as well. So you wanted to get your the people you wanted to hammer. You wanted to get them in front of uh, the the hard ass judges, and then the other guys you wanted uh, you know in front of the softies. It's, so it's, it's the. But on the other hand, with something as big as this, as taking a step as unprecedented as this, right? You would think they'd want to be really careful to avoid any any appearances of favoritism or impropriety, or they're just so confident in the whole thing that it's almost a dare. It's like, let's find somebody who contributed to, to Clinton, uh, who uh, also defended some Epstein people, and let's get a picture of him sitting in George Soros's lap. What are they going to do? I, I, I mean, or it could just be, well, any Jan number of things. Yeah, but James, I, I got to say, the the judges that they often deal with in the mm -hmm. District of Columbia, who have all these, for example, the, the January six cases, those hundreds and hundreds of cases, they are such a layup for the for the for a Democratic yeah. Justice Department that you know th they're used to getting softer touches than the judges are going to find in in Florida. All I'm saying is that it's not that hard for them to find a judge that um oh i imagine i imagine not um so here's here's my question and this goes back to something that you wrote in your piece you had a quote saying that you were not given to bad legal takes but 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 but, but. what if actually it if you say it's it is about january 6th and uh, not whether or not he kept a menu then at some point you seem to suggest that the doj believes that the uh, trump stopped the steal postal january 6th that all of this crossed over from the the realm of ill-advised acting into actual criminal behavior 
perhaps a right. criminal conspiracy, and that they were saying things, the administration that in the in the the people were saying things that weren't true, and that this constitutes a crime. I'd like to know how, and if so, the difficulty of having to prove that in court, because even if you even if it was true, it seems to be an extraordinarily subjective thing to prove in a court, and that would be a mess. Yeah, I agree with that. And I want to be clear. This is not a case I would bring. What I'm trying to do is figure out what the Biden Justice Department mm-hmm. would, would do, which is a which is a very different thing. Uh, and, you know, this is the Biden Justice Department, which is getting a lot of pressure from the Democratic base, which doesn't understand why Trump hasn't been drawn and quartered already. Right. Mm-hmm. So the reason I think this is this is all uh, important is because they clearly ratcheted up, I would say theatrically ratcheted up their investigative uh, energy in June when there was a revolt on the left about whether Garland was moving hard enough on this investigation and on and on Trump. So the theory, James, that the the um, the January 6th committee in the House is pursuing, which I think the Justice Department is also pursuing based on reporting that that we can see, is that I think there's two main crimes. There's the crime of um, corruptly obstructing congressional proceedings. So it's obstruction of Congress rather than obstruction of justice. And that would be in connection with uh, the January 6th count of the electoral votes. And then the second thing, and this is the more, I think, insidious statute that if I were on the Trump team, I, I would be worried about. There is a there is a statute called um, conspiracy to defraud the United States. And I think when it was enacted uh, eons ago, the Congress that enacted it meant by fraud what you would think fraud means, which is that, you know, you basically steal money. But the way the Supreme Court interpreted that statute in the 20th century, it's got such looseness in the joints that it covers anything that a prosecutor can dream up that amounts to a deceptive practice which prevents the government from carrying out one of its proper functions. Oh, great. Can, so we have, yeah. we have the emanations of the penumbra of the Commerce Clause. Fantastic. Yeah, pretty much. And, and this is basically, this was Andrew Wiseman's favorite statute, for example, in the Mueller uh, probe. So as you can see, there's a lot of room uh, to make mischief in in something like that. So here's what I think they're where they're going. And I think the players here are important as well. Uh, in late June, they served uh, they executed search warrants against two lawyers, John Eastman uh, and uh, this guy, Jeffrey Clark. Eastman, of course, was uh, Trump's go to guy on on the constitutional theory that Pence had the authority to discount electoral votes, right? Uh, Jeff Clark was the Justice Department lawyer who uh, Trump threatened to, you know, fire his acting attorney general and install uh, Clark. Uh, Clark was the guy who wanted to send a letter to the to the different states, starting with Georgia, that said that the Justice Department was very concerned about fraud and they should think about reconvening their legislatures to consider. Uh, voiding the popular vote and substituting the vote of the uh, Republican-controlled legislature. Those two guys they did search warrants on in late June. After that, they gave grand jury subpoenas to Pence's two top aides, was it Mark Short 
and um, uh, Greg Jacob. Uh, and then last week they subpoenaed uh, Pat Cipollone and Patrick Philbin, who were Trump's two top lawyers in the White House counsel's office. And the day after they do the raid in Mar-a-Lago, they walk up on a street in Pennsylvania to a member mm -hmm. of Congress, mm -hmm. Scott Perry, and they give him a search warrant and take his cell phone, just like they took the communications devices from Eastman and Clark. Who is Perry in this equation? He's not only a guy who was pushing very hard on the stop the steal stuff uh, and contending there was a lot of fraud in Pennsylvania that should overturn the election. He's the guy who introduces Jeff Clark to Trump. So to me, it's very obvious looking both at the way that January 6th committee looked at this transaction and the activity that they've been engaged in in the last six weeks, that they are looking very hard at this aspect of the investigation, which involves what they call the fake electors. I actually I call them the contingent electors. They call them the fake electors. Um, and this whole uh, the, the use of the Justice Department to put pressure on the states to change their electoral results. I think they're going for this conspiracy to defraud the United States on the theory that they were undermining the government's ability to count state certified electoral votes. And the reason I say this is pretextual is the Mar-a-Lago search happens in the middle of all this activity. The guy who owns Mar-a-Lago is the guy who's the main kahuna that they're trying to make the case on. And if you're going to tell me that everything else they've done is about January 6th, but the Mar-a-Lago search has nothing to do with that. It's just mm -hmm. about classified information. I'm not buying it. Right. So not nuclear then. So that that is just another red herring along with everything else. Um, I don't think it's a red. I'm not. I, again, I'm not suggesting that they're not interested in the classified documents. I think they are interested in it. They're just not as interested as they are in making the January 6th. So hold on a second. Peter. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, and then to you. So, I mean, at so if, if they hadn't done any of it, if they hadn't decided to make this case against Trump and the rest of us, we all would have moved along i mean if I, i'm trying to get my head around the severity of what they're accusing these people of doing aside from offering their advice on various things and i don't know um but at what point do you do you arrest mike lindell for making youtube videos in which he believes that the the election was stolen i mean at, at, at what point does somebody's protestation of the continuation of the the idea of the stolen election cross into criminal behavior to the to the department of justice simply because you won't shut up about it right so now you're getting to why i think this is not a crime my bright line james is mm -hmm. violence i think mm -hmm. that any anyone include from trump on down if you ha have strong evidence that somebody conspired to use force against security personnel or against the Capitol, everybody who did that should be charged with a crime, as far as I'm concerned. But if you're not talking about violence, then particularly in the context that we just described about obstructing Congress and defrauding the government, you have two big problems. One is, um, I, and John Turley made a, a, a brilliant remark, uh, uh, observation about this, referring to the, remember the character in the, Vizzini in the, in the Princess Bride? Where, uh, oh my goodness! He yeah. says, "Yeah, he says you, um, you keep you know, using that word." 
inconceivable. Oh, yes. <laughs> so what John's point was... Very good. Very good, by the but, way. But John, John's point was, you can't prove that Trump knew that this was uh, fraudulent and that he didn't really believe it by just saying, it's inconceivable that nobody could, <laughs> could believe this. Um, I think Trump really thinks this was a stolen election. So good luck trying to prove, because it's you. It, this is a criminal case is not about the average person. The criminal case, you have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant intentionally committed fraud. And I think they're going to have a very hard time with Trump's state of mind. That's number one. And number two, just quickly, um, these two charges amount to criminalizing a frivolous legal theory. I don't mm -hmm. think John yes, Eastman that's what said I mean. that's exactly John, right. I was going to ask you that very point. Right. Because so, John, John Eastman put forward a legal theory about the powers of the vice presidency, which, as I understand, has never in American history been adjudicated. He's as entitled to his theory, with which, on this very podcast, no less a legal expert than John Yu, who, after all, teaches at one of the top 10 law schools right. in america john you said well actually i think there probably there may be something to that it depends on your interpretation of this phrase and that this is the way lawyers think it's particularly the right. way constitutional lawyers think yes and you can't that's not illegal yeah that's what i uh, peter that's what i say i john has written uh john eastman that is Yes, John Yu has written on this as well, but John Eastman has written like an 8,000 word defense of his theory. Now, I don't agree with his theory, but let's say it's not even colorable. Let's say it's frivolous. It's bogus. When I was a prosecutor, I got to tell you, I mean, frivolous legal theories are the coin of the realm. If they were a felony, I would have been indicting five felonies right. a day against right. defense lawyers. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just don't think for the sake of the country, we want to go down the road of saying a it's frivolous actually, legal theory is, it's, is... It's a version of freedom of speech. You have to permit lawyers to test out different theories. You have to let kids right. going through law school, what's frivolous, what isn't, what has better grounding in constitutional text and reasoning. You can't you can't say you're se we're sending you to jail because you cooked up a theory with which the rest of us now decide we disagree. It, it's, in, it's inconceivable. And it's how do you convince a lot of people that the election was stolen? You start jailing and putting in the people who say the election was stolen. You know, not the ones who did anything about it, but just simply put okay. forth a theory. So now, Andy, I'm going to... Uh, th uh, this is truly my last series. By the way, I can't tell you what a pleasure it is yes, to absolutely. have you to ourselves because, doggone it, Fox News keeps going to breaks at all the wrong times. <laughs> just just what I want a follow-up question from... Mac what did McCarthy mean by that? Now I get a chance to ask. Because he's well, not clear enough, <laughs> damn it. Peter, you make an absolutely a wonderful point, you know, and you're watching Fox. The problem is you can't watch the, you know, the news in other countries. But if you had ExpressVPN, you, oh. I'm sorry, I just I just wanted to do that. I'll do that later. But I, I just wanted to break away from the spot after you talked about how you didn't want Fox to News where you can hear about the raid. Yeah, the raid. And, and nobody nobody blushes for using the word. OK, so. Here are the theories on why they raided. One theory is that they raided because of some, he took some documents he shouldn't have in violation of the Presidential Records Act. Andy McCarthy says, bogus. They could, not a chance they raided for, for that reason. Second theory is, although it's related to the first, but this is in the Washington Post as of this morning, that he took nuclear secrets. 
And as James said earlier, before you came on, it's all over Twitter. Some of the crazier people on Twitter are saying, well, he was going to sell those secrets to the Russians or the Chinese. So they had to raid the house in the interest of national security. And the answer to that has to be, are you kidding me? They knew he had nuclear secrets and was intending to peddle them, and they let it go for a year and four or five months or however long. It's and then the third theory is they're going to go after him on January 6th, and they're going to go after John Eastman, and they're going to go after him on this very tenuous charge that you just laid out. And if they do that, that is political persecution, and we have become a banana republic. Or it's intended to keep him from being able to run again. That's a sub-subset of political persecution. Andy? Well, I do think that he'll be charged with that. I think it'll be a terrible idea. But, you know, look, Peter, I I think, you know, Merrick Garland, who I'm not pretending I know him well, but I knew him when I was prosecuting terrorists in the 90s. I thought he was one of the adults in the room at the Justice Department, the Clinton Justice Department. I liked him. Uh, I thought he had good judgment. And I know, for example, that if somebody came up to him and said, you know, here's what we ought to do. We ought to send the FBI out to investigate America's parents for protesting at the, you know, the woke curricula at the schools. The Merrick Garland I know would have known that was a loopy, stupid idea to do. But guess what? He did it. He did it. He did Um, it. And it seems to me that when you know, they try to keep a lid on their base as best they can. But when these guys get riled up and they say, jump, the, the Biden administration goes how high. And I don't know of anything, including climate, the, the climate legislation of all time. I don't know of anything they want uh, more badly than they want Trump indicted. OK, I keep saying this is my last question. This really is my last question. You're a man of some years. And you devoted a big part of your life to using the law in the interests of ordinary Americans and defending this republic. And you've devoted the years since to journalism in the interest of explaining the law and defending this republic. And I happen to know that you have a young son who has years to go, a long future ahead of him. How do you feel about the rule of the state of the rule of law in the United States of America today. And if you don't feel good about it, what on earth can be done? Well, I feel very I feel very not good about it. And I, I you know, I've been thinking about this a lot recently uh, because I think without knowing it, I was on the cusp of where it went wrong. And that is, I think it started to go wrong in the the rise of jihadism in the 1990s, which changed the culture of the FBI and federal law enforcement in general from basically being what it was before was like the sort of federal version of cops and robbers. It was straight law enforcement. And I think once once uh, terrorism started, the, the culture changed to national security and intelligence, which even though we didn't realize it at the time, um, that's very different from law enforcement. It's almost night and day different. And we were talking a, a little bit earlier about the difference between FISA and how the criminal justice system, the way it works and the discovery provisions and the the uh, uh, 
the way you have to share information with the other side keeps everybody honest in, in a way that that doesn't exist in, on the national security side. I think when you deal with national security and foreign counterintelligence, you're dealing in politics in a way and policy in a way that you're not in the justice system. And you're you no longer feel as obliged to be transparent because you you convince yourself that what you're doing to to protect the country and save the country is more important than you know those those jejun rules that we deal with in the in the in the criminal justice system and i just think i don't think anybody like i don't think this was was bad spirited on anyone's part and i just i'm not sure that we thought it through enough but if i could make one change i think at this point i would take away the fbi's uh domestic national security mission. I would take away the foreign counterintelligence mission and let them go back to what they did well, which is to to do crime, to do law and order. And that should be the Justice Department's main role as well. Uh, and I would get another, even though I don't like the idea of new agencies and new bureaucracies, I think the Brits, and I used to argue, I used to make the other argument. So take, take this for, with whatever grain of salt, uh, it, it should have. Uh, I used to think it was a good thing that we had both the law enforcement and the national security mission under the same roof at the FBI because they could leverage each other, which they did during the, the, the counterterrorism period beginning in the 90s. And I always thought the Brits, that our system was better than the Brits, where they have a separate agency. MI5 uh, and MI6, as I recall. Yeah, right. right. But they're not law enforcement agencies. So they have a lot of surveillance powers, but they don't have police powers. And I kind of think now that we've had this experience of 20 or 30 years watching how that's not a it's a combustible mix. I mean, look, in the 1990s, when Jamie Gorilla put up the wall uh, that didn't allow the law enforcement people to share information with the national security, the foreign counterintelligence people. Jamie Gorilla was a deputy attorney general or something. At Correct. And in, in okay. the in the Clinton years. under Clinton. Right. Yeah. Right, right. When 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 she did that. um we took great umbrage at the suggestion that we would, I mean, the hypothetical problem, and it was hypothetical at, at that time, that she was worried about was that law enforcement agents who didn't have enough evidence to, to bring a criminal case would pretextually use their national security FISA surveillance authority to sit on someone for a long time until they, you know, use a lie that you had a national security angle to do this until they finally committed a crime. And then you leap on them and prosecute them. And I said back then, that's absurd. It's ridiculous to think that would ever happen because on the national security side, you have to go up a whole different chain of command. And there's a million places, whether it's, you know, the top levels of the FBI and the top levels of the of the Justice Department, they're never going to let you do that. If you had a rogue, you'd be better off lying about what your evidence was on the criminal side than trying to go FISA. But what I didn't what I didn't factor in was the possibility that the headquarters, the bosses would take over the investigation. And when <sighs> they want to do something abusive, there's nobody there to tell them no. You know, when I was a line prosecutor, James Comey I, does what he wants mm -hmm. to do. Well, right. Yeah, right. So, so I think that's the problem. I think that um, it, it just doesn't it, it just doesn't work. There's too much. Um, there's not only too much temptation to depart from 
the 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 strong protocols that make the bureau the bureau on the national security side it changes their ethos as a as an agency an institutional change as the result of 911 so if i understand this correctly then bill clinton declined to kill bin laden because he knew that gorlick would put up the wall which would prevent interop interagency operation which meant that bush would be free to commit 911 knowing that after bush did 911 the bureau would change in such a way that it would become instrumental in destroying anybody who threatened the power of the nomenclatura down the road 20 30 years that's yeah. why uh, yeah. bush lied and people died i think yeah, i think yeah. you nailed it yeah. <laughs> or of this crooked timber shall know how straight be built and that this is what happens eventually in organizations become uh they drift they change they, and something needs to be done so great at least we know after talking to you Andy, I, i'm a lot clearer than i was before on this and less inclined to blather misinformation as i'm prone to do and i also have you know peter saying what can we do we have a way forward about this building on your comments on what changed in the institution after 9 11 and perhaps what we should go back to doing great ideas i hope uh, perhaps in the DeSantis administration when you're running justice we can get something <laughs> about that done i know hey, i used to want mccarthy for governor of new jersey now i want him for ag actually yeah. i want him for president DeSantis, your time will come. If we've got I, I don't, I don't uh, guys, I don't need to be on the signature line of the indictments. I just need to stay <laughs> out of the caption. That's my, that's, <laughs> my goal you, are, in life. Are you on the National Review Cruise, by the way, that's starting up again? Yeah, yes, yes. Okay. Can you get me on? Can you please put a word in there? Yeah, I'd love to go back again, but, you know, we got uh, smaller. I think smaller they have a, li a, a lifeboat your size, don't they? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, it doesn't take much to have a lifeboat my size, uh, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> It was in the kitty variety. Andy, thanks. It's been a pleasure as ever. We'll talk to you down the road. And, uh, you know, good luck with Fox and the rest of them. And I hope somebody else besides Fox calls you because what you say needs to get out. You send Thank Fox you News. You send Fox News a copy of this podcast and say, see what can be done when you don't cut for a commercial break every 90 seconds. <laughs> Tell me. Great guys. talking to you guys. I okay. will. Andy, take guys. care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, speaking of commercial breaks, I'm just going to do it, uh, grind all the gears and go right into what I mentioned before, ExpressVPN, did I not? Now, if you are a faithful listener to this podcast, number 605 and Ricochet, and of course, ricochet.com, where it comes from, you know that ExpressVPN is our VPN. And you might ask, why? Well, listen, here's one way of looking at it. Watching Netflix without using ExpressVPN is like going to a casino and only being able to play the slot machines. I mean, why would you limit yourself like that, right? The big money is someplace else. Well, other countries have different content libraries, which is really fascinating. You know, and you, frankly, I love watching some shows, even if I don't understand a word that they're saying, because the visual style can be different. The women are just the locales, the storytelling. It can be fascinating to go other countries and look at what they got on Netflix. But how are you going to do that without a VPN? Well, you can't. So if you have no VPN and you're stuck here in America, then you only get access to a fraction of the content based on your location. But on your own, you see, you can you can you can change these things. With ExpressVPN, you can control where you want Netflix or other streaming websites to think you're located. For example, if I wanted to watch 2019 Joker again, and I um, I really think that's a fantastic film. I hate it, but it's fantastic. If I wanted to watch it right now, I'd have to be in Australia. Instead of traveling all the way down there, if I'd like to, call up Tim Blair, see how he's doing. But, nah, no, airfares is expensive. Fire up the VPN app. Tap a single button and let ExpressVPN do all the traveling for me. All I gotta do is refresh the page and <laughs> the movie's there. Shazam. Probably Shazam, too. Uh, ExpressVPN is compatible with my phone, with my tablet, with my laptop, and my smart TV as well. And the speed's Blazing fast. 
can stream in HD with zero buffer speeds. And with servers in 94 different countries, you know, you're not going to be lacking for content to watch. So be smart. Stop paying full price for streaming services and only getting access to a fraction of the content. Get your money's worth at expressvpn.com slash ricochet. Don't forget to use our link at expressvpn.com slash ricochet to use an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. That's right, expressvpn.com slash ricochet. And we thank ExpressVPN for sponsoring this Ricochet podcast. Hey, a couple of promos here, Peter. I got to run through these because people need to know. If Rob were here, and last we heard he was in Marseille somewhere in a back alley getting stabbed or something, I don't know. Uh, he would tell you about Ricochet's great community and how people like to get together in real life. And he would be right. Texas Tribune Festival program is now live. Texas breakout policies, or I'm sorry, Texas breakout politics and policy ideas event is happening September 22nd through the 24th in downtown Austin. The lineup chock full of big names you know and others you should, including a few from our own Ricochet Network. Catch David Drucker as he interviews Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin and Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson live on the Trib Fest stage September 23rd. Explore the full program and grab your tickets at tribfest.org. If you would like to attend the event, and why wouldn't you, use our special discount code for a one-time 15% off the general admission ticket. Go to TribFest, T-R-I-B-F-E-S-T, dot org. Enter the code RICOCHET15 in the promo code box at the bottom of the registration wicket and click apply. Hope to see you there. Meetings galore coming up. Brian Stevens, he's hosting one in Atlanta over the weekend of the 19th. Michael Collins hopes to get UK members together in Dublin, Ireland on the 26th of the month. I'd love to be there, too. I'd love to be at the mall. We've got meetings coming up in, uh, oh, Northern California, Huntsville, Alabama, New Orleans, various stages of planning. That's, that's the great thing about Ricochet. And if you've gotten to the end of this podcast and you've never heard anything we've done before, you've missed 604 Ricochet podcasts. I, I implore you to go to ricochet.com and discover the sane, civil, center-right community you've been looking for in the web low these many years. Uh, and if you do join Ricochet, hey, give us a place and time and you know, tell us where you are and the ricochetti, as we like to be called sometimes, will come to you. Well, Peter, I don't know what to add to that. We can do some pop culture thing uh, with Rob not being here. I know Rob has been chomping and champing at the bit for a long time to talk about James Caan, uh, but we probably shouldn't. Um, I suppose I hate ending with a celebrity death. You know, I really do. I, I would like to end with a celebrity who is alive and give them a round of applause before they shuffle off this mortal coil, mm-hmm. for example. Um, but then I keep going through the list of people who I think might qualify, and I wonder if they're alive or dead or not. Um, but what we had this week was the uh, passing of Olivia Newton-John, which occasioned much sort of knuckle-biting from a certain generation of men who recall her. Our generation, let's face it. <laughs> well, yes, yes, but um, our generation indeed, which is strange because she has such a squeaky good girl image, uh, as somebody said about, you know, she was like Doris Day, although, you know, Doris Day was married four times. Uh, <laughs> she had that, and she had that, that good girl gone bad thing in Greece, which I right, never right. saw. They think I, I loathed that musical. Uh, but then she did this physical thing in the early days of MTV videos, which I think readjusted her image quite nicely. Uh, but she's not been on anybody's radar for an awful long time unless you fire up the old Xanadu album because you've got a thing for listening to ELO you're working with Gene Kelly, which nobody does. So, alas, it was um, too early, and there you go. Do you have any particular memories? Uh, only only of watching her in Greece when I, what would I have been in junior high, maybe? Something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, and that's the... 
you just named three things. I had no idea. She did a workout show. No, that I I would have missed that, of course. And did. physical. She did the song "Let's Get Physical," which is oh, a, oh, early, oh, you know, MTV oh, hit because everybody's in their spandex and their leg warmers and the rest of it during the high, okay. you know, during during that whole craze. Well, she actually talks about salacious things, which you know, coming from her was yes. An epochal moment is uh -huh. upon us, and I'm it not is. talking about politics mm -hmm. on Monday, unless I have miscounted. And you will correct me instantly if I have. This coming Monday, the final episode of a series to which you and I are both totally devoted mm. will drop. For all mankind? Better Call Saul. Oh, I haven't watched an episode of it. Are you kidding me? No. Nope, How did I get the idea? It's inconceivable. How I did know. I get the idea that you because were following everybody, that? Because everybody is. Because uh, um, I think when we were having a conversation about this and I was trying to text you and uh, yes. it was not, not now. Saul's on. You know, yes. It, it, oh, you which, were being, I see. And You're someday I will. I'm, great. I'm a big Bob Odenkirk fan. I probably will someday. But here's the, here's the thing. It was attached uh, to Breaking Bad. And I had the right. feeling like I have to go and watch eight years of that before I can get up to this. Apparently not. Apparently you're supposed to. I don't know. Um, it is odd that all of these things that I recognize to be absolutely fantastic with people that I really enjoy and the rest of it, I'm perfectly capable and, and, and happy not having seen them. I just am. Um, there's no aching void in my life to see this. If obviously so, there are some shows I have to watch. I, I just I, I have to, but I find myself more and more of these. So days what's going, the distinction? Why 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 is there what what is it about a show you have to watch that's different from Better Call Saul, which you, um, which you nearly should watch? Um, I <clears throat> sometimes it's just that it has a it was recommended as such, and I watched it, and within the first five or seven minutes or so, something either clicked or it didn't. If it doesn't. I just, if I don't want to spend time with these characters, I don't find the milieu interesting or the rest of it. I, I, I just, what, you can't tell. It's, 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 could be a pheromone that comes off the television set. I can't tell you. But sometimes it's almost like I am not watching this because everyone says I should. And I get, oh. like, you get sort of mulish about it. And, and that, you that's feel... Rob's attitude toward Game of Thrones. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I, I'm sure that my life would probably be better if I watched this show and enjoyed it as much as everybody else does. But the odd thing of it is, is that I find myself less and less drawn to episodic TV these days because it's such a psychological and intellectual and emotional investment to choose yes, through all of these years of these things it of is. a fictional story and become involved with the characters. And I get that. I really do. And I'm not making an argument against it in any way, shape, or form. I just find myself gravitating watching and studying old movies and trying to discern something from the culture and the times there as opposed to my own i feel like i know enough about my times sometimes frankly and i'm not particularly happy in this time sometimes frankly uh and so i like studying what came before so i have a better grasp on how i got to this place on what culture used to be what the expectations mm -hmm. were the language and the rest of the stuff like that and i don't have an awful lot of time by the time i get around to it at the end of the evening sometimes i want to slip into the warm bath the familiarity of something i've seen i watched this old man which i enjoyed a great deal um i'm about oh, wait, 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 to... that's the uh boat not boat bridges jeff bridges 
Jeff, Jeff Bridges. Bridges. Yes, Bo Jeff Bridges Bo is, is 90 years old and he's a ninja. <laughs> and I'm about to sit down and go through For All Mankind, which is a show that I dearly love, an alternate view of the future in which the, the Soviets beat us to the moon and the space race intensified. But, you know, here's what happens. I have the vast menu that is available to me of all of these shows. And I see I see the pain for Saul right there. And I realize this is quality stuff. And I love Bob Odenkirk and all the rest of it. And it's probably standalone. And I could start at this. could start it. I could start it's 12 o'clock. I suppose I could. But then right down next to it is another movie that I haven't seen in three or four years that I love. And I know it. And it's almost like slipping into that warm bath of familiarity. Well, over the course of two or three nights while I was working, I have the bad habit that my daughter has as well, which is to watch things while you're also working on other things. Because if I know the movie, then I can just sort of surface for a moment to find my favorite parts. In this case, I hate to say it, it was 2010, the sequel to 2001, which I rewatch about every three or four years because it's a f criminally underrated movie with great performances. Helen, Helen Mirren, as Ripley, for God's sakes. So I watched this, and at the end of it, I'm reminded that they use a very, very underwhelming version of Thus Sprach Zarathustra for the music. Right. That's not something you rush. You kind of go out and get the best version of it possible, wouldn't you think? Wonderful I think, piece of music. You unless would. you unless you run to the end of your budget. I guess so, but you know, they they, they got uh, you know, not Lenny Bernstein's brother, you know, Saul. I don't know. So the end of the movie comes up and I'm thinking, well, how did it sound in 2001? And lo and behold, there on my streaming service is 2001, which I haven't seen in 10 years. And I start to watch it. And now I'm fully gone with that. And I'm more interested in watching that movie for the third or fourth time and studying it from a distance of a decade um, than I am, frankly, in watching a bunch of criminals and low timers and the rest of it, even though I love Bob Odenkirk. So sorry, sorry, I will someday, but that's that's just it. I'm, I'm becoming more and more um, interested in previous cultures than I am in my own, which is not that good a sign. End of my rant. How about yours? No, no, no. I just, uh, this is apart from anything else, I just made notes for all mankind is a series that the missus and I have to take a look at this weekend. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know that anybody had made 2010, but Helen Mirren, I, I am not aware of a bad Helen performance. Is, Helen Mirren is Russian captain of, of uh, the, uh, the, the oh. ship. Oh, if she turned in a bad performance, it would be as a Russian cosmonaut. And she's not, she's not in bad performance. John Lithgow, uh, Roy Scheider. Uh, Bob oh, these Ballab are serious people. Okay. Bob Ballab, uh, to me, I think is 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 an absolutely fascinating movie. It answers. It just it it just is, and people hated it because they loved the Kubrick, and this isn't Kubrick. It's Peter Hyams, but it's 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 worth it, and it's a great period piece as well. Anyway, that's that. The Peter Robinson, James Lalics uh, on uh, Siskel and Ebert show will be starting up in a whole new podcast series this week where he talks about one show he loves. And then I say, never saw it and talk about something else. It'll be great. Don't miss it. Welcome uh, back, Peter. It's been great to have you. I assume we get Rob coming along sometime next week, unless, of course, he is indeed dying, bleeding in a Marseille alley. But from the last photograph, he seemed to be up in a balcony with a cappuccino. Big surprise. Brought to you by Bowl and by Branch and by ExpressVPN. Support them for supporting us. And, of course, join Ricochet today. It's the best thing you can do. You will love it. It's cheap. You will meet people. You will be... I, did I mention the fact that you have to pay to comment? 
because that's what makes it different. That's why it's not accessible like Facebook or Twitter. And if you could just leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, it only takes a minute to do, or you could take five minutes and leave us a one-star. No, give us that five-star. The reviews help new people discover us, which keeps the whole Magilla going. That'll do. Thank you for listening, and we'll see everybody in the comments at Ricochet 4.0 next week, Peter. Next week, James. And you're right about Rob. He's the kind of man who always seems to be on a balcony. <laughs> Ricochet. Join the conversation.